Hi, I'm Gina Mullane, and in our previous episode, we introduced you to Julia Vitarello. She is the founder and CEO of Mila's Miracle Foundation and also Mila's mom. Welcome, Julia. You're back here again with us today. Thank you, Gina. And I'd also like to introduce you to Dr. Tim Yu, who's uh, joining us as well. Uh, Dr. Yu is a neurologist and researcher at Boston Children's Hospital. So welcome, Tim. And uh, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks, Gina. Well, first, it's great to be here. Um, As you said, I'm a neurologist and a geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital. And I uh, run a laboratory there where we work with a lot of kids with rare diseases. Uh, We focus on neurologic rare diseases, including autism, um, epilepsy, other neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh, And uh, we also work with uh, kids like Julia's who have rare orphan diseases that uh, not a whole lot of other folks are working on, either from the diagnosis or understanding or or therapy side. So it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Great to have you. And in our last episode, we really learned um, a bit about the journey that you and Mila have been on and what led you to meet Dr. Yu. And I wondered if you could share a little bit um, about that with us. How did you guys get to know each other? In December of 2016, Mila um, had just been diagnosed with Batten disease, and I was struggling to accept the reality that I was given uh, that Mila, you know, would know would not live past early teens. Um, and after a few weeks of trying to digest that, and then seeing Mila throughout the day, smiling and laughing, and you know, filling our whole house up with her huge, beautiful smile. I just thought this, you know, this is not possible and I need to do my very, very best to try to um, find some solution here. And I was hitting wall after wall after wall. Um, and at some point I I got Mila's diagnosis and it was only a half a diagnosis. So they had only found one of her two mutations um, that led to her type of Batten disease. Uh, one has to be passed down from the mom and one has to be passed down from the dad and um, they could only find one. And so I didn't know much about (laughs) diagnostics or genetic disease, but I started reading and asking around, speaking with other parents of rare diseases. um, And I learned that I needed somehow magically to get into kind of the highest level of diagnostic lab, which was called whole genome sequencing. I didn't know much about it. I learned that there was a lab at Harvard that was um, working on this and that there was a four to five month wait. And I just thought there's no way. (laughs) Mila doesn't have four or five months for me to try to figure out, you know, what her other mutation is and be totally confident that Mila, in fact, has this CLN7 type of Batten disease. And I had a two-year-old son who was, you know, Mila at two years old was you know, running around playing and swimming and counting and singing. And um, and Aslan, my son, was doing the same. And I had no idea whether or not he had this disease as well. And the only way to truly test him was to have both of those mutations. So I turned to social media and I made a, a plea to all of my friends. And I just said, I don't know if anyone has any connection to this lab at Harvard, but I need to get in there and I need to have this done fast, really fast. Four to five months is not going to cut it. And 
strangely, I didn't think I had any connections, you know, at Harvard Medical School or at any lab in Harvard. And, you know, I started getting replies of, hey, I might be able to help you. I might know someone, but nothing really turned into anything until one of my best friends from college, who's a doctor in um, Boston, happened to repost this to a group of physician moms in the Boston area. And that ended up um, her plea of, hey, my best friend from college, you know, really needs this help. Can anyone help expedite this? Uh, ended up on the lab, you know, on the lap of, you know, Tim because, through his wife, who is a physician as well in Boston. And so, you know, within a day, I got a call from this Dr. Yu that I had never heard of. And, you know, he said, I saw your, your plea and I have a lab um, at Boston Children's um, that tries to, you know, help difficult to diagnose diseases in children. And, and I'd like to try my best to help you. Wow, that's incredible. The power of social media for sure. Dr. Yu, what was that like from your perspective, uh, sitting at the dinner table or wherever you might have been and hearing that someone needed your help and, and what came after that? Right. So uh, for, our, for my part, um, it literally was that. I was sitting at the dinner table on a Friday night and my wife, Cindy, who's a physician and a member of the physician moms group that Julia just mentioned, uh, turned to me and said, hey, have you seen this post? Uh, turns out that a mutual friend of ours uh, at MGH had seen it, passed it along to her, and then she pointed it out to me. And through that short introductory post, I got connected to uh, Julia's story and visited her website and heard about uh, how her daughter, had, Mila, had just been diagnosed. And we thought really, well, we had two reactions. One, of course, is just emotionally, uh, anyone who works with these patients and, and hears the stories of families struggling with rare disease diagnoses, uh, you, you just, your hearts go out because this is uh, such a, uh, these are such tough diseases and tough diagnoses. Uh, so we wanted to help from that standpoint. And on top of that, it turns out that my lab had been doing whole genome sequencing for about 10 years. And we had a special interest in these difficult to diagnose cases. And it was a really happy confluence of us wanting to help and then having the tools to be able to do it. So it really was that. The, the very next day we said, let's, um, let's help. I connected through Facebook, got her email address, got her cell phone number, and we, we were on the phone the next day talking to them. That's incredible. So Julia, you're in Boulder, Colorado. Dr. Yu, you're in Boston, Massachusetts. How did you make this work given the geographical challenges? For me, it was just a miracle to have anyone step up and say they wanted to help me. I had felt completely alone for the few weeks, you know, leading up to this and thought, how in the world am I going to do anything to help my daughter? And, you know, lots of researchers and doctors out there that I had reached out to are all incredibly busy. Um, and I was asking something that was extremely difficult. Um, I had been told that very few labs would probably ever be able to find this missing mutation. And even if they did, they very likely wouldn't be able to interpret it and understand it well. Um, and so I really wasn't um, thinking that I was going to necessarily come across anyone. So for me, the geographic distance uh, meant really nothing to me. I just was happy that someone out there was going to do their best to help me find this.
it's worth clarifying at this point that we were trying to help you, Julia, and your family situation. Um, just simply provide that simple answer, a diag complete the diagnosis. We, we had no dreams of providing therapy at that point. In fact, we hadn't actually developed a novel therapeutic in our lab. Our lab was really focused more on uh, solving the puzzle um, from a diagnostic side, f finding new genes and so forth. Um, so that was a relatively limited scope. But yes, uh, that after that Saturday uh, telephone call, um, we laid out a plan. We said on Monday, can you have us shipped blood samples from yourself, Julia, your husband, uh, and your daughter, and as well as your as your youngest son too, Aslan. And we had those in hand just a couple of days later, FedExed over to us, and we began working on that. So I know that Dr. Yu is a hero to Mila, um, and I know that um, you've mentioned the same for your son, Aslan. So how has this work and the diagnosis that then soon ensued, how did that come to affect Aslan? You know, for about three months after uh, Tim and I first spoke, I continued to watch Aslan develop normally. Um, I would put him down to bed at night and I would just you know, break down in tears when I shut his door and put him to sleep because I just thought, what's going to happen tomorrow? And I just would imagine him starting to trip and fall like Mila had. I imagined him suddenly not seeing something in the corner of a book like Mila had. Um, I imagined him starting to stutter and I would not be able to sleep at night um, because I started imagining my very normal little son starting to turned downwards like Mila. And I just thought, you know, for me, I've always wanted to be a mom. And the thought of losing both of my children and being a person without children, <laughs> you know, and just being, not being a mom was so incredibly devastating for me. And I could barely get through those months leading up to that. And when I eventually got some news from Tam that he uh, believed that he had figured out what the missing mutation was and that he had confirmed that Aslan did not carry this mutation or the other mutation, that he was actually free of carrying any batten-causing mutations, um, I, I, I felt so much happiness and pain at the same time. Everything is in contrast to Mila. So I was so incredibly relieved that motherhood was not going to be ripped away from me, which is what I'd been thinking about the last few months. Um, but, you know, then of course it hit me that Mila had this disease. And so it was always kind of a contrast of Aslan taking off and starting to kick a soccer ball and starting to, you know, do all these things that Mila was no longer able to do. So it was it was incredible happiness with incredible sadness together. You paint such uh, strong pictures in the way that you tell the story. Um, from your end, Dr. Yu, uh, it can't have been easy to get there. Um, is there anything to fill in about that aspect of the journey that will help us to understand a little bit more about what's involved. Yeah, so when we set out, um, we knew that we had to look hard uh, in Mila's genome. We knew that uh, traditional clinical sequencing, which had been appropriately performed and done very well, had found one of the mutations, but it was missing the second mutation. And that without that second mutation, it made it hard to kind of give the assurance to Julia and her family that Aslan was really going to be okay, right? 
And then that was what was motivating us. And when I told our team exactly why we were doing this and what, who we were doing it for, it was on everyone's front of everyone's minds that we had to work really, really fast. Um, we got the whole genome sequencing done in just a month. Um, when we got the data back, uh, we stared at it. We looked through all the different regions where one looks for, typically looks for mutations and confirmed to our satisfaction that the clinical se sequencing hadn't missed anything obvious there. We found the mutation that had previously been described by Mila's doctors and, and we found nothing else. And then we began looking through the hard parts, the parts of the genome that people have very great difficulty currently uh, interpreting. And I won't go into the details of what it was. I think that's not the point here. The point was that um, after about a, a week of hard work, because we knew that Mila's family must be in a very uncomfortable situation, not knowing which way the cards would fall for, for Aslan, uh, we were incredibly gratified when we uh, had that eureka moment. Yeah. When we saw that cloud of unusual uh, sequencing data that pointed us and helped us piece the puzzle together and say, yes, this this was it. This was Mila's mutation. And now we have what we need to um, answer the question for Aslan. So that was a, a very satisfying moment. And the second satisfying moment, of course, was when we then took that information and we applied it to Aslan um, and were very happy to say that he was actually scot-free and that he didn't bear either of these. And so that was a very happy phone call, um, obviously, for that reason. As Julia said, it also confirmed the diagnosis for Aslan's older sister. Um, and that's what we wrestled with next. Mm -hmm. She mentioned a bittersweet moment. So you started this episode talking um, about your work in rare disease. And I wondered if you could take a step back and maybe educate us, tell us about this space in general, uh, how many people it affects and kind of the implications of rare disease today. Sure, sure. So there are worldwide about 350 million people with a rare disease. That's a whole country full, right? And so rare doesn't really capture it. This is rare at some level, meaning that if most people, uh, they sort of live under the radar. Most people uh, haven't heard of the names of these diseases, but in, in aggregate, this is a huge number of people who are affected. In the US alone, there are 30 million people living with a rare disease. Um, half of those are children, and the majority of those children unfortunately pass away before the age of five um, because there are no treatments for them. And so with that backdrop, it's obviously a very motivating space to work in, right? Now, our work uh, in the last decade had really been focused on um, giving names to these rare diseases, finding the genes that are causing them, because that's the first tragedy, that you have families like Julia's that are out there walking around who um, have not been told what they have because no one can figure it out. We're very happy to say that uh, that problem is being solved. The Human Genome Project uh, finished now nearly two decades ago, um, sequenced the first human genome for $2 billion. And now that cost of sequencing a genome is down to around $2,000. And so we can now offer genome sequencing to kids and we're solving more of these cases uh, at a much faster clip. The complex 
next transition is going from being able to name these diseases for families like Julia's and being able to do something about them. And that's where this story intersects with the flow of science right now. It's that for the first time, we have some tools at our disposal that we've now shown can be brought to bear on some of these diseases freshly diagnosed, even as freshly diagnosed as Mila's case, and that we can actually turn some of these diagnoses into treatments. So that's where Mila's case is so important to the field and where it's going right now. So Dr. Yu, uh, I know that um, you shared all of the um, amazing work that's going on and the complicated uh, aspects of that, but I wondered if we could look specifically at Mila's treatment and, um, and maybe both of you could share kind of the steps that went into that, the timeline, um, how did it come to be? Sure. So uh, when we had our chance to actually see what Mila's missing mutation was and complete that diagnosis, we were staring at it. I haven't gone into the details of what it was, but suffice it to say, it was, it was an unusual mutation. It was a mutation that didn't just, uh, it didn't just alter the instruction. Most mutations alter the instruction set of a gene by rendering it essentially uh, useless. It introduces uh, a, uh, an early um, stop in the middle of the instruction set that makes it impossible to proceed. Well, um, Mila's didn't quite do that. It actually, um, it actually changes the way, changed the way that uh, her gene was processed in a way that actually left most of the instructions intact. And once we finished patting ourselves on the back for having found the mutation, uh, we were staring at and staring, staring at it. And we had this uh, maybe a third eureka moment where we realized, actually, this is a type of mutation we can do something about. Because most of the original instruction set was intact, if we could just figure out how to put the pieces back together in the proper fashion, then we ought to be able to uh, get Mila back to a functional copy of the gene. That was the key insight that gave us this concept. We might be able to try to develop a drug to help her. So that was, that was in the spring of uh, 2017 that we had that realization. And we knew that it was an intriguing idea. We knew it was also a dangerous idea too, because um, what, developing a drug for a patient, for a single patient based on this concept had never ever been done before. And so to raise it with the family was something we'd have to do incredibly thoughtfully. And we had to convince ourselves that there might be some plausible chance that this could help. Otherwise, it would be irresponsible um, casting about of hope, right? Um, and so we talked to lots of folks, including uh, uh, me members of our academic community who had participated in developing a drug for a similar, a, a, a similar disease called a spinal muscular atrophy. So I called up my colleagues who were the neurologists on that trial, um, who told me about this, uh, their really, really wonderful experience uh, developing an, what's called an antisense oligonucleotide drug for a different ultra rare disease of infancy uh, called spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, this is a, a disease that leaves infants uh, weak at birth and floppy. 
That's the first thing parents notice. And then they become uh, unable to, uh, increasingly unable to support their own respiration. They can't breathe and they eventually pass away uh, much, much too soon from uh, respiratory complications. Uh, and talking to these neurologists about their experience with a real groundbreaking trial that which, which had just been unveiled a few months uh, before we met Mila, um, they impressed on me um, how an oligonucleotide drug for that disease really reversed the course of this condition for those infants. And it was those conversations and reading all that we could about how that drug was developed and how well it had done that convinced us that uh, we ought to be able to try to do something similar for Mila. So I do remember that first phone call that I had uh, with the family. Well, it was preceded first with a phone call with their scientific advisor and also a, a phone call with your clinician because we wanted to make sure that they would be on board before we raised or even breathed this as a possibility to you all. Uh, but that first phone call when we said, look, we have an idea. It, it's a little bit of a crazy idea. It's not ever been done before, but we'd like to pursue it. I think that was a pretty significant phone call for both of us. Now, I think one thing that I also definitely remember from that phone call, Julia, was that we talked about your existing efforts. And as you know, um, Julia's family had launched a foundation to start a gene therapy for bat disease. And I told you at that point, um, keep doing what you're doing because the path that you're uh, going down is a tried and true path and it ought to work. So please keep your efforts going in that space. But we're gonna keep working on this, keep this plan in the back pocket and we'll give you updates along the way. But it hasn't been done, done before. It's a much more unproven path, uh, but we think there's something uh, worth a shot. And I remember that call, obviously, incredibly vividly because, you know, the first piece of news we got was that Tim and his team had actually found this missing mutation, which had been previously thought to be nearly impossible. And on top of that, I was told that Aslan did not have baton disease. And the fact that Tim and his team went a step farther completely caught me off guard. I had not expected, you know, a pause. And then, you know, we, we have an idea of how I might be able to help Mila. It, it, I was in shock. And I had been told just a month before when Mila was diagnosed that we were many, many years away from ever thinking about stopping a disease as complicated as Batten disease. And, you know, in that month leading up to meeting Tim, I had started work on a new gene therapy for Mila's type of Batten disease. And it was obviously in the very, very early stages, um, but it offered some glimmer of hope. And then to have Tim tell me that he had another idea and that it could be kind of a backup you know, if, and, and it was a long shot and, you know, we don't know if this will work, but suddenly I had two possibilities, you know, that were both looking legitimate and maybe long shots, but it was 
incredible to be able to have these two possibilities when I was told that Mila had, you know, a hundred percent chance of not living past the next few years and that there was nothing on the horizon. There was barely any understanding of the disease itself. Needless to say, I got off that call thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's two different people helping me, you know, work on two different types of treatments. Um, and I did as Tim recommended, and I really continued down the path of gene therapy. And, you know, at some point, um, my focus did start to shift more towards this antisense oligonucleotide or ASO. Over the next couple of months, we stayed in very close contact. Uh, I wanted to know how the gene therapy was coming. Uh, I wanted to uh, hear how Mila was doing. And I wanted to keep updates, uh, to keep giving her updates as to uh, how we were progressing with this crazy idea. Uh, it ended up being very helpful because we were able to um, keep in touch with the network of scientists that Julia had, had created to do preparatory work for the CLN7 Batten gene therapy and uh, talking to folks um, uh, through her foundation um, helped make sure that we were on track and that had that we had the necessary reagents and concepts and uh, and that we had a path forward. And really the next several months went by incredibly fast and in a way that science doesn't often uh, actually uh, do for you, um, our experiments were working. <laughs> and we had gotten skin samples from you and your family. We made them into cell lines. We proved that uh, the mutation was doing what we had predicted that it was doing. And we began designing these antisense oligo drugs. And we were finding that uh, at first pass, a good number of the ones that we were designing were actually appearing to work. And through a series of collaborations, we convinced ourselves that uh, this drug was causing the gene to be assembled properly, and it was making the cells healthier. And it was looking more and more like this crazy idea was actually uh, bearing fruit. And in just a matter of a few months. By August of that year, August 2017, so this is eight months after we first connected on Facebook, we felt like we had enough to begin broaching this idea to the FDA. And so we began checking with them to say, hey, look, we've got this project incubating. It looks like it's got legs. We've got a very sick little girl in Colorado. Um, do you see a path forward for us? And we began those conversations to negotiate what would be the appropriate list of steps necessary to bring this to our patient as an investigational trial. And by two months after that, we were talking to folks in industry who are the usual folks you go to when you it's time to manufacture a drug. And we were re recruiting them to help. And then with help from Charles River, 
we had assembled the necessary data necessary to manufacture it, test it, um, and then bring all of this to the FDA uh, by January of the following year to ask for their permission to uh, start a trial for Mila. And so that was in October of 2017. And then, you know, within two months, everything, you know, the long checklist of what was needed to go from, hey, should we try to make this happen to can we produce the drug and, and test it in animals and get it approved by the FDA? You know, at that point, it was now the end of the year. And Tim kind of reached out to me with an update of, you know, we're getting really close. Um, and along that way, I think the most exciting news was that Tim had shown in his lab and numerous other labs that Mila's cells were being restored to health, you know, when this oligonucleotide was, um, you know, added to her cells that were growing in the lab. And so for us, that was enormous, you know, and that was obviously very enormous for Tim and his team as well as like, this is a real reason to give this treatment a shot. The treatment has a special name. I didn't even know about it until I was walking down the back hallways of Boston Children's with Tim and he said, do you want to come and see Mila's drug? And, you know, we had just moved to Boston in January. At that point, um, the drug had not been f f um, given the go-ahead by the FDA yet, but was imminent. And uh, we had moved our family there just a few months, you know, after coming to Boston Children's for the first time. And Tim took me down all these back hallways and elevators and more hallways and elevators and said, I want to show you something. <laughs> And uh, knocked on a door and a guy opened the door and he said, hi, this is Mila's mom. And he said, oh, oh, okay. And he opened a little refrigerator that had a special thermometer and a lock and key on it and opened it. And there was many trays of these little tiny glass vials and he pulled one out and showed it to me. And it said, Milasen. And I remember how emotional that was for me because I didn't realize didn't hit me until that moment that this was this kind of first ever drug that was personalized for just Mila and no one else. And so when the treatment started, uh, we all knew that um, it was going to take a little while for it to kick in. And so it took a few months. And then after a few months, we started noticing some things. Uh, we started noticing that her seizures were decreasing and they were decreasing in the number per day and they were absolutely decreasing in the severity uh, they were lasting, you know, 10 seconds, 20, 30 seconds, you know, they weren't lasting minutes and none, the arms and legs were not thrashing anymore. I was never having to hold her down anymore. Uh, she was back to eating by mouth. There was no more supplementing of her food through her G-tube. She was sitting up and standing up much straighter. So I could take my hands off of her while she was leaning against me. And she was smiling and laughing you know, and she had just started prior to the treatment to really not reacting well. I never thought twice about giving the treatment a chance because I knew exactly what Mila's life would look like if she were not given any treatment. It was a very distinct downward slope of a line. Um, and so the thought of having a treatment that, you know, had some risk involved because it was a new drug designed for Mila, it also offered hope. And so for me, that was... Um, an obvious choice. And I just really hoped for the very best. And we've seen incredible things. You know, in the last year and a half, we've seen amazing, you know, ability to greatly slow or stop or even improve a lot of her disease symptoms. 
And unfortunately, not all of them. I think it's worth uh, emphasizing in a way uh, what the trajectory of diseases like Mila's typically is. And this is something that we talked uh, quite a bit about, Julia, Alec, and I, at the start of this treatment, um, that neurodegenerative diseases like Mila's, they have a start and a stop. Of course, the stop is uh, what unfortunately is death. Um, and they can begin and quite subtly um, years before a patient is diagnosed. In the case of Mila's, we tracked back her symptoms, her first symptoms back to around age three and a half from what you all recalled, right? And we started treating her at age six or age seven. We met her at age six and we started treating her at age seven. So it is worth emphasizing that the natural history of these diseases is tough, that there's a, a long downhill hill slope. And in general, when uh, we think about drugs that we use to try and treat these, we are trying to slow the progression or we're trying to stop progression. Um, in that context, it was actually somewhat surprising to us how well her seizures responded, um, surprising and gratifying. What that suggested was that um, the drug itself uh, was showing signs of really working to improve parts of Mila's brain that were presumably were sick at the time that we started the treatment, but not yet dead. The rule in treating diseases like this is uh, treat early, treat often. The earlier you can diagnose a child and the earlier you can get a treatment like this to a child, then um, everyone agrees that's the best. I think that uh, we continue to fight with Mila um, and fight her battle with her and support her and we're uh, with, the, with the medication that we think is helping her. Um, we think it's promising, is showing very promising signs that the, that the drug is doing what we intend it to do. Uh, and we also think about this pathway that we've created and what its implications are for other children like Mila. And we care about each of those things, the patient, the drug, and, and the pathway. And I think we take from each of them exactly what um, we need to, which is to um, provide as much support as we can, um, continue this treatment, which, you think, which we think is helping, um, and then look for opportunities to, to help others in the same way. Can you, I know you both are, are working on um, that exact point, how to help others um, utilizing this pathway. Can you share a little bit more about the progress that you've made or what you're hoping to try to do? Sure. Um, why don't I start and then we'll, we'll take this one together because it's been a real team effort. Um, I think that Mila's case's, case has captured a lot of people's attention. Um, one, because it is an exemplar of what rare disease patients go through. And, and Julia and her family, Mila's family, has, have done such a, um, 
a great job and been so brave in putting themselves out there to share this journey with, with folks, to let the general public know about the plight of people with orphan diseases. Um, so it's already having impact in that, in that manner already. Um, I've talked about the uh, novelty of this case, the first time that a medicine has been designed and made and actually executed for a single patient. Um, and that has very wide-reaching implications that, uh, that the field um, has become very excited about. Um, the idea that we could actually offer a drug that is designed for patients without necessarily the entire machinery of the pharmaceutical industry behind it. The idea that we could, with that dedicated teams could carefully tailor make and craft these drugs and deliver them in time to impact the course of disease, um, that's a new one. And Julie and I have been talking to uh, many folks to uh, help extend that concept to as many patients as possible. We've started with conversations with the FDA. Uh, we've established relationships with uh, folks like you all at Charles River, who are essential for making this type of work happen. Uh, we've reached out to the drug manufacturers. And the message in each of these cases is how do we take this process, this drug development machinery, and shrink it down mealicized? and do that over and over and over again. Uh, this is not going to happen overnight. Uh, we're, we're pushing hard to take what we think are the, next, the necessary next steps to continue exploring this idea. To continue, and continuing to offer this for more patients like Mila is the right thing to do. But it's definitely not gonna happen overnight. And it's not gonna work brilliantly in every case overnight either. Um, as you can see with Mila's case, that uh, as much hope as this provides, uh, it's complicated. These diseases are complicated. So I think we're in a very critical phase right now where this work has to proceed expeditiously, uh, but carefully with proper medical and ethical oversight to make sure that the right patients are offered this opportunity and offered it in a way that we can all collectively learn from it. Uh, this is like the early days of gene therapy, and we want to make sure that we explore it, uh, but with safeguards in place, and so that we can uh, maximize benefit. And we know there are risks. There are very, very prominent risks in taking this type of customized therapy approach. Um, but we need to do our best to, uh, to balance those and to make this move as quickly and, and safely uh, as possible. The, the fact is that uh, Mila's case uh, is already open doors. It's already opened a door for a 25-year-old woman uh, from the Midwest who uh, was diagnosed just a few months ago with a terrible genetic form of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And she is now being treated with an antisense oligonucleotide that had never been tested in humans previously. And uh, that testing uh, in that scenario very much parallels uh, Mila's. And I, I think that uh, in a way, um, we are hoping the best for her. Um, and 
uh, in a way she's already uh, part of, uh, of what uh, Mila has done for the field. Um, we also know that there are many more Milas out there. And in the uh, year and a half since we started treating Mila, we've now come in contact with many families who've reached out and we have many cases that are similar at the scientific level and at the clinical level to, to Mila's, where um, the patient was diagnosed with a genetic disease that we think we can develop a drug for. And that work is underway. And uh, our, another addition to uh, what Mila has uh, done for the space. Julie and I are talking about how we can leverage the different aspects that we bring to the space. Uh, her as head of her foundation and, and, and a patient advocate, uh, and Mila's mother, uh, myself in my role at Boston Children's. Um, and together we've approached uh, many folks in the community, the scientific, the regulatory, the legal, and the ethics community to have these discussions um, and to help solidify this path for these patients. I think that it's a really exciting time. And even as we care for Mila and the many more Milas that come, I think that uh, we are doing our best to try and recruit others to walk down this path with us uh, to help the patients that uh, we can bring along with us. As Mila's treatment took off, um, everything that Tim and his team did really caught the attention of scientists and physicians. And suddenly now, Tim and I found ourselves in a place where we had a lot of people around us who were really moved by this story. And people wanted to help. People wanted to donate money to help cover the treatment leading up to it. People wanted to donate their time and their services to help Tim pull off this kind of crazy notion, which turned out to be, you know, a reality. And they people pitched in in ways that is pretty hard to capture in words. Um, emails, phone calls, texts from people in pharmaceutical companies and and biotechs and just normal people who had come across the story just all reached out saying, like, how can we help? We really want to see this happen, you know? And they wanted to see it happen first and foremost for Mila because they were moved by Mila's story and they wanted to give this smiling, bright-eyed girl, you know, a chance. I think they felt like Mila could have been their child, could have been their daughter, their sister, you know, their granddaughter, their niece, because she had developed um, so normally and was so outgoing and had this huge smile and these bright eyes. Um, and I think reading her story um, really hit people really hard and they thought they kind of lucked out with their own kids and that they didn't realize about this world of rare disease, you know. And then, um, and then as time went on, I realized and I knew going into it that this was a long shot, like I said, and that this may not be in time for Mila. So, you know, this is always so hard for me to talk about. But, you know, I said, I remember saying in a blog that I wrote the night before Mila's treatment, you know, is Mila going to be this pioneer who, you know, whose life is saved miraculously? Or is she going to be someone who kind of gives hope to so many others, you know, and at some point I realized that, you know, Mila had lost a lot and that she was an amazing fighter and she's still fighting so hard and we don't know what Mila's future holds, you know, but 
now Tim and I are seeing that all of our really hard work and efforts and the incredible collaboration with so many people and supporters around us has allowed for Mila's treatment to happen. It wasn't me. It wasn't Tim. It wasn't Mila. It was everyone together, you know, that really pulled this off. And it is opening up a new path and it is opening up a path for other Milas, you know, and for kids that in the future will be diagnosed early before they might even have symptoms. And, you know, I just have had a hard time, but also um, it's been really sad and really happy at the same time to realize that Mila has given this incredible gift, you know, to other children that follow her across, you know, hundreds and maybe in the future thousands of diseases that, you know, she kept her smile and kept pushing and kept fighting and kept attracting the attention of people in industry and science and just people around the world following her story. And without that, it would have never happened. She would have never been given this chance and um, it would never have opened up a treatment path this early, perhaps, you know, for so many other children. And so now seeing this path open up and seeing so many other children kind of fall into line here that could be potentially treated um, in a way just like Mila was, uh, is pretty amazing legacy. Um, and, you know, Mila's still fighting and I still have hope for her. Uh, but obviously she's up against pretty tough odds right now. She's about to turn nine. Nine's pretty far along for Batten, Zeal, and Seven. Um, but I am feeling very happy that my efforts together with Tim and his whole team are making a difference and um, will allow that next family that has a child like Mila to be given a horrible diagnosis but then also in the same sentence, be given hope that, you know, there could be a treatment that could help significantly slow or stop or possibly even improve that child's disease. Thank you so much for sharing your very personal story. Julia, thank you, Dr. Yu, for the pioneering work, you and your team. We, we're just so moved and so appreciative of the work and um, the honesty and hope to uh, share your story in a way that makes a difference. So thank you for everything. Thank you, Gina. Thanks for letting us tell the story. Um, once again, it's really important for us to be able to let others kind of know about what we've done and what we hope to do in the future. Thank you for having us. And uh, thank you, Charles River, for all of your support for this work as well. This conversation was such a nice addition to our first episode, All About Mila's Story. If you haven't yet, you can watch our short documentary about Mila's journey at meetmila.com. I know everyone I've shared this with wants to know how they can help. You can visit stopbatten.org CRL and join our giving campaign to fund more programs like this one for other children with rare diseases. We have a great opportunity with an anonymous match up to $150,000, so your donations can have double the impact.
I would like to express our appreciation to Julia and Dr. Yu for sharing their groundbreaking story and giving a face to personalized medicine. Mila's story is meaningful and gives hope to so many. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? Contact us at vitalscience at crl.com. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at criver.com slash vitalsciencepodcast. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Chris Garcia. See you next time.